Today is Mother's Day, and I'm not sure that if all of you know that Mother's Day was started by a good Methodist mom. It was Ann Jarvis in the late 1860s. She started a, a, a mother's circle group, a, a mother's friendship club. And the whole purpose of it was to bring together mothers of Union soldiers and mothers of Confederate soldiers and to get these mothers and their sons together. She lived in West Virginia. And she believed that if she could get mothers together with their sons, that they could bring about reconciliation. She believed mothers had the power to bring peace in this world by the way that they love and they guide their children. She worked very hard in trying to bring this reconciliation, but she also had a real passion for all the mothers and children that had been so affected by this civil war. There had been so much grief and loss of husbands and brothers and sons, and she wanted to reach out to moms and to all these children who were struggling and doing what she could to support them and help them. She taught third grade Sunday school year after year after year. She worked with moms trying to teach them about hydration. If you have a fever, how important is it to hydrate your child? Not necessarily so well known in the 1860s, 70s. She talked about sanitation and nutrition. She tried to reach out in any way she could to serve children, to serve mothers. She had 13 children of her own. It turned out that she was an amazing lady who blessed life so many people. She had a daughter. Her name was Anna. And Anna had a great love for her mom. And she so admired all that her mother did to, to truly bless life. It was Anna who said, you know, we need to have a, a day to honor mothers. Our mothers who've done so much to make a difference in our life, we need to honor them. And she and her mother, Anne, began working on that. But her mother died in 1905. It wasn't until 1908 that Anna finally was able to get her church in Granby, West Virginia to hold a worship service on a Sunday morning where they honored mothers. It was May the 10th, 1908. She had read so many cards about her mother and how amazing she was. She wanted to lift them up. She wanted to celebrate moms. And so they held the service. And it went great. And so it was that she then took it upon herself to literally start traveling around the country, anywhere she could go, to talk to people about the idea, we need to have a worship service to honor moms. We need to be doing this. And she, she got great support as she started traveling around the country. One of those who really helped to underwrite her travels and support her was the greeting card business. Another was the floral industry. Another was the confectionery industry. No, she got lots of support as she tried to generate this idea of Mother's Day. And in the end, she helped to convince President Woodrow Wilson in 1914 to sign a law that said the second Sunday in May every year will be Mother's Day. The idea caught on. It was incredibly popular. Anna said there were three things that you need to do every Mother's Day. It shows she was a good Methodist. Three things you need to do every Sunday, every year for Mother's Day. First of all, write your mother a letter. Tell your mother how much you love her. Write her a letter. Secondly, give her a carnation. 
Because the petals of a carnation hold tight to the flower, like a mother's love holds tight to her children. And third, you need to go to church as a family. Because our faith in Christ is the foundation of our family and our love for one another. So take the time to write your mother a letter. Give her a carnation. And then be sure to go to church together. Those are the three things she said need to happen on every Mother's Day. And so it was. It started to take off. It went incredibly well. But as it did, something else happened she had not anticipated. And that was it became very commercialized. She did start seeing all the incredible things that were going on. Um, as Mother's Day started to grow, the amount people made on flowers and on confections, but especially on greeting cards, she got so angry at Hallmark. She really took after them. I want to read you what she had to say. How lazy can you be to buy someone else's sentiments for your mother? One day out of the year, sit down and tell your mother what you really think of her. An insincere printed card or ready-made telegram means nothing except that you are too lazy to write the woman who has done more for you than anyone else in the world. Oh, she really went off on them. They, they kind of started backing off of their support for Anna there. But I got to tell you, my mother loved her Hallmark cards. She loved the notes that I would write her. I know that Marcia has loved the cards that our children have written to her. No, I think that Anna early on had it right. It is a day to stop and to write your mom a letter, to tell her how much you love her and what she means to you. It is an important day to give her a flower, to give her a gift. How important it is to come together as a family of faith and to worship. You know, I got to tell you, I know that for some of us, our mothers have entered the kingdom of heaven. Some of you are blessed to have your mother, your grandmother sitting next to you this morning. Some of you will be making a phone call this afternoon to a mother, a grandmother. But if your mother's entered the kingdom of heaven, you can write her a letter too. I did that this past week. And I got to tell you what a meaningful experience it was to take the time to still say thank you, and to remember. And that's really what we've come together to do today, to take a moment to remember the incredible love that our mothers have for us and what it has meant to our lives, how they have blessed us in so many incredible ways. Being a mother is not easy. And so we come together to say thank you and to tell mothers, you really are great. I want to continue the sermon series this morning called to greatness. We said that this sermon series was going to be about living in the light of Easter and that how you and I as the resurrected people are called to greatness. It does not mean power and wealth and fame, but it means living a life of meaning, living a life of significance, living in such a way that your life matters by blessing the life of another. And we've said every single one of us is called to greatness to do that. This morning, I, I couldn't help but think about Paul writing to Timothy. You know that Paul never got married, never had children. But Paul did have a son in the faith, he called him. Timothy, son in the faith. He had met Timothy on his journeys. 
He saw that his grandmother, Lois, his mother, Eunice, well, they were a part of that Christian church. They were people of real faith. And he saw that faith in this young man, Timothy. Timothy had great dreams of doing things that could make a difference in the world. He wanted to go with Paul, and Paul invited him to come. Now, you need to know that Timothy was shy. We know at times he was reserved. He would be the emissary for Paul, though, and go to certain churches, carry messages for Paul, and those churches weren't always excited that some young kid was showing up, and sometimes they treated him pretty rough. So we know that Timothy at times sort of felt down, and so Paul writes to Timothy to say, the faith that I saw in your grandmother and in your mother, that's the faith I see in you. Remember Remember your mother. Remember your grandmother. For when you do, you will discover again, God did not give us a spirit of timidity, a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and love and self-control. Timothy, remember your mother. Remember your grandmother. It will help you remember who you are. Moms, we've come together today to remember it's why we are here. And there are three things that you do that make such a difference in our lives. We want to remember them and to celebrate them. One, you are the ones who listen. You listen to our hopes and our hurts, our dreams and our fears. You listen. Everybody needs somewhere in this world that we can go and share our very souls to be honest, and to share our hopes and our hurts, our dreams and our fears. I can tell that Timothy was blessed with an incredible mother and grandmother so that this young, timid boy could go to them and say, I want to go with Paul, but I'm afraid to go with Paul. I am so shy, but I want to. The fact that he went with Paul, it says to me he had a mother and a grandmother who were there to listen. You know, recently we celebrated, we remembered our anniversary of the 20th anniversary of our bombing, incredible tragedy. It was on April the 19th, 1995. Some of you will remember how it was just a few years later, there was another tragedy one day after the tragedy that had happened here in Oklahoma City, about four or five years after, but on April the 20th. And that was when we had Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris go to Columbine, the high school, and there they went on a rampage of killing. They killed 12 students, one teacher. They injured 24 before they killed themselves. At that point, it was the worst school shooting in our history. And that event at Columbine really rocked us to our soul. It made us stop and start looking at ourselves and asking, who are we as a country and how are we living and what are we doing? It was a tough moment for all of us. It was interesting, after it was all unfolding, 83% of the country said that the problem that this happened was because of the parents. Obviously, it was poor parenting. It was the parents' fault. How the children were raised, 83%, it's the parents' fault. Interestingly enough, though, Tom and Susan Clevold, the mom and dad, did not speak out. The police and their lawyers had said, you do not need to speak. In the 16 years since the shooting, 
they've only given three significant interviews. But there is a book being written, and an interview was done recently, and more and more, as the years have gone by, have come to light. What we've discovered is the Klebolds were actually a very normal family, a good family. When Dylan was a child, he was very bright. In the third grade, he was put in the gifted classes. He played Little League. They attended the Lutheran Church. He went through confirmation. He loved learning and he loved life. He was a bright, compassionate kid. No one in the family had ever owned a gun. His mother worked for the state of Colorado teaching people with disabilities. His father was an enthusiastic man who had been in the Air Force. They had one other son. Nobody could have seen it coming. When he went to junior high, something started to change. They did not know he was being bullied. He started not liking school. His grades went down. By the time of senior high, he really had started to withdraw. He wasn't feeling accepted. No, he created, he built his own computer, hacked into the school's computer system, started doing things kind of on the fringe, some sort of trouble, but not violent. No, there was a girl he wanted to date. She didn't know he was alive. He went through all the typical things of a high schooler feeling alone and rejected. Susan, however, was still reaching out to her son, telling him she loved him. You're a special child. She did not see it coming. Until that morning on April the 20th when they got a phone call and they heard the shooting was going on and at first they were afraid for their son and then they realized he was the one doing the shooting. It was hard wrap their mind around. Our child is the one who's causing so much pain. I want to read you what she has said. In the months that followed the killings, I was insane with sorrow for the sufferings my son had caused and with grief for the child I had lost. I would break out and cry at the strangest moments and got lost while driving. It was impossible to believe that someone I raised could cause so much suffering. For the rest of my life, I will be haunted by the horror and the anguish that Dylan caused. She struggled in the beginning. She started thinking she really wished they'd never moved to Colorado. They almost bought a house in California. And she thought if we'd just bought in California, this wouldn't have happened. And then she got to the point she wished that she had never met Tom up in Ohio State. She wished they'd never gotten married. She had wished they had never had children. She finally moved through that, though. For as time went on, she had to be honest with herself. She had loved her son, Dylan. She grieved over the pain that he had caused. But she had loved her son, Dylan, so very much. In this book that was being written, the author was there, and he interviewed Tom and Susan, and he said to them, If Dylan was here today, and you could ask him one thing, what would you say? What would you ask him? And Tom immediately spoke up and I'd say, what were you thinking? What were you doing? But Susan sat there quietly looking at her feet and finally she said, I would ask him to forgive me for being his mother and never knowing what was going on inside his head, for not being the person he could confide in I would ask him to forgive me. She tried. 
Sometimes children don't want to open up to you. Sometimes children don't want to confide in you. Sometimes children want to keep you at a distance. But mothers, keep trying. Keep listening. Because we all need to be listened to our hopes and our hurts, our dreams and our fears. We all know that we can go to God and that is the gift of God's grace is that He will always listen to us. But we need that in the form of a human being. And it is God who works through you that we might know His grace. If you listen, I think one of the great gifts that my mother gave to me was she was such a listener. She's been gone two years. I'd lost her for years before that. She had Alzheimer's. But you know, the thing I look back on my mom and I think about is how much growing up as a child, elementary, junior high, senior high, the amount of times we sat and just talked. I could talk about anything to her. She listened to my hurts and my hopes and my dreams and my fears. You become the hand of God. We come to know God through the way you love us. But secondly, never forget, moms, you are the ones who instill values in us. We're watching. We, your children, watch and we listen. And you instill values in us. You help us come to know what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. What are the values that we're going to embrace and choose to live in our lives You are the ones who instill those things in us. And as life goes on, sometimes we will not follow the things that you have taught us and the values we've embraced. And your job is not to tell us how to live life, but it still is to hold up the mirror so we look at ourselves and see those values and we are reminded of the people you've called us to be. As the followers of Christ, who are we called to be? You know, our whole country has been reeling recently with all the struggles that have gone up in Baltimore, Maryland. Seeing the riots and seeing the looting, you know, it just makes you, takes you back to years before and to see the struggles. I've always had a, a soft spot in my heart for Baltimore since our son Paul went to Johns Hopkins University. We would travel to Baltimore and we've come to know the city and the inner harbor and we've also seen the places of great poverty and struggle. If you've been watching and seeing all that was going on, I'm sure you've seen this video that went viral of a mother named uh, Toya, uh, Toya Graham. Toya Graham was a single mom. She had six kids. Her only son was Michael, 16 years old. And Michael was telling his mother before school on that day when all those riots broke out this afternoon, people are going to get together at the mall after school and bad things may happen. And Toya kept telling her son, don't you go there. Don't you go there. When school is out, you come straight home. And he promised that he would. But when school got out, Michael didn't show up at home. And so Toya went looking for him. She went down, and sure enough, this rioting was going on. There were these hundreds of people who were out there throwing bricks at the police. Twenty officers would be injured. There would be hundreds of arrests. There would be looting and burning and chaos. And she went down there looking for her son. At first, she did not see him. And then she looked over and saw him coming across the street. 
He had a hoodie on. He had a mask on. He had a brick in his hand. And they were in the midst of this riot. And she said when she saw her son, she looked him in the eye. And when she saw his eyes, she knew it was him. She said she lost it. If you've seen the video, you know what I mean. <laughs> she went over to her son and she slapped him upside the head. She started hollering at him, put down that brick, put down that brick. That's not how you've been raised. She started yanking that mask off his head. Why are you hiding your face? What are you thinking? Oh, she slapped him and he starts backing up and backing up. But she's kind of like a prize fighter. She had him in the ropes in the corner and she kept coming on. She kept coming and he kept backing up and she literally chased him all the way home. She had no idea the TV cameras were running. But boy, they were and it soon got put out there and it went viral. And man, our country has been so fascinating to listen to the discussion about what happened. Because you had a lot of people who spoke up and said what she did was terrible. She embarrassed her son in front of his friends. She was asked about that and she said, I didn't embarrass him. He embarrassed himself by what he was doing. And then she started slapping him upside the head. So many people said, that is so wrong. You don't hit your child. You don't slap him upside the head. I'm going to have to let you decide that's on your own. I mean, if you have a 16-year-old boy who stands so much taller than you, who has on a hoodie and a mask and a brick in his hand in the midst of a rioting crowd, maybe the proper approach is to go up and whisper in his ear, could we have a moment to talk? Uh, you know. Maybe on the other hand, the best approach is to slap him upside the head and say, what are you thinking? Put down that brick. That's not who we are. The argument about what she should or should not have done has kind of overshadowed the most important part of the story because the most important part of the story is what she did after that. You know, she explained, when I got him home, I wanted this to be a teachable moment. And when she got him home, the first thing she said to him was, what has the police ever done to you? What have the police ever done to you? Think about what you're doing out there. Who could be hurt? You say you care about Freddie Gray. This is not how you get justice. If you believe you're doing something important, why are you hiding your face? You should be able to show your face with whatever you do. She wanted this to be a teachable moment to remind him of the values that she believed were important. It was fascinating. So many people started going on to, to Michael's Facebook page and posting. And, and the thing that so many of them said was, do not be mad at your mother. Hug her. The people who were interviewing asked Michael, so what did you think when you suddenly saw your mother? He said, I knew we were about to have World War III. And they asked him, so what do you think about what your mother did to you? And his answer was, I know my mother loves me. Moms, 
you need to help us remember our values. As Toya would say, sometimes you can talk to your blue in the face and they still do something different. Don't stop talking. Remind us. You don't tell us how to live, but you remind us of our fundamental values of who we are as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Do we live the values of the golden rule? Do we live the values of a good Samaritan? Do we feed the hungry? Do we believe in honesty? What is it we believe? You help us remember. Paul was able to say, when I look at you, Timothy, and I see your faith, I see the faith of your mother and your grandmother. They had instilled the values in Timothy that would enable Timothy to go out and truly do great things. And so third, moms, it is your love for us that enables us to love ourselves. It's the way that you love us with an unconditional love that enables us to love God, to love others. It's your love that creates an awareness in us of who we are called to be. It's your love that helps us to find our place. A mother's love is just different. You know, I, I thought about Ann Jarvis. I thought about Susan Klebold. I thought about Toya Graham. I thought about Eunice and Lois. I thought about my mom. You know, mother's love, it just seems to come so natural, almost an innate thing, the way they love their children. And maybe that's because if you bring life into being, if you create life, it is so natural to love it, to want to care for it, to sacrifice for the life you've brought into being. The interesting thing is, it really is the way that Jesus has called all of His disciples to act. That Jesus has called all of us to love with an unconditional love. To be willing to sacrifice for others. To show acceptance and compassion. But that comes harder for some of us. I think it comes easier for a mom to be able to love her children for the life that she's brought into this world. It is that love when you choose to love in that kind of an unconditional way, you help us to find our place. I've been telling you some stories from Bob Leslie. He's a physician who's an ER doctor, works in the emergency room, works in Rock Hill, uh, South Carolina. But he wrote a book entitled Miracles in the Emergency Room. And in the book, he, he tells about how one morning he got there and he was handed a chart, and, and it was for a little girl five years old. Her name was Autumn. She was in the emergency room. She'd been brought in coughing and having a hard time breathing. They were afraid it might be pneumonia. None of that was so alarming until he got to the bottom and showed meds, meds for HIV. When you're five years old and you're already on meds for HIV, it's almost always the fact that your mother was a drug abuser, that she has AIDS. That's how it gets passed on to someone so young. And when you're in the the profession of loving and healing and caring and just something rises up in you and he felt a sense of indignation and anger before he walked into the room 
And when he walked into the room, here was this little five-year-old girl sitting up there on the table, this long brown hair, big brown eyes, beautiful smile. She was one of those kind of children that just melts your heart. And she looked so happy and looked good. And he looked there at, at Autumn and, and he looked over in the corner and here was a, a young woman and she was now holding another baby uh, who might be a year or so younger than Autumn. And he figured, obviously, mother. And he looked over at Autumn, spoke to her for a moment and then looked at her and said, so what's going on? And said, well, she has the cough and she, she has this AIDS, uh, she has HIV and she's been doing just fine. We knew we needed to bring her in. We were afraid of complications and and he said, well, we'll do x-rays. I'm sure she'll be fine. We'll be working with her. And so is this your other daughter? Yes, yes, this is my daughter. She curled up in her arms. Her name is Summer. And all he thought to himself was, good Lord. Autumn, Summer. He said, those are interesting names. What is your name? And she said, well, my name's Dakota. Dakota Wells. My father was a ranch hand in North Dakota. That's where I got my name. I'm just glad he wasn't working in Idaho. <laughs> Bob kind of laughed and thought, yeah, this is going to be just a little different here now. It was obvious how much she loved her daughter, Summer, and held her close and looking over at Autumn. And then Bob looked over and he saw the trace marks up her arm. And she caught him looking and she said, yes, yes. I've had problems in my life, but I'm, I'm free now. I've been good for quite some time. And you know, I was one of the lucky ones. I didn't get HIV. I didn't get hepatitis. But that wasn't the case with autumns or summers. They weren't so lucky. Bob suddenly sat down. He, she went on to explain, when we got married, we wanted to have children. We tried and tried. We had a number of miscarriages. We had already decorated the nursery. We were so close. We were going to name our daughter Spring. And he said, how do you know it wasn't going to be a boy? She said, I know. I knew. I'm going to have a daughter. We're going to name her Spring. We kept on trying for another several years and we could never have children. And then we found out about this place in Baltimore where you could adopt children who had problems. And we've been so blessed. The Lord has blessed us with autumn and with summer. And we're trying the best we can to help them have a happy and a good life. Suddenly Bob was in such a different place. He had gone from being indignant and angry to now looking with eyes of admiration to this young mother. He said, I hope to meet your husband. He'll be here this evening when he gets off work. Bob got up to leave, and as he got to the door, she said, by the way, be sure and tell Miss B hello. Miss B? His wife's name was Barbara. Nobody called her Miss B except children who were in the third grade Sunday school class that his wife taught at their church. Well, that and another group she had taught but immediately Dakota spoke up and said, I was in your wife's program, Teens Under Fire. It's been 18 years now. I was there with her. I sat on the back row. She might remember my name. 
Bob could think about that program his wife started. She ran it for a decade, going and getting teens who were struggling, who were making bad decisions, trying to show them the consequences of those decisions, how it can lead to a drug abuse, how it can lead to abuse, how it can lead to prison and death, showing them the realities of these are the your consequences of your decision. But Dakota simply went on and said, I was making all those decisions she was talking to us about, and I kept on making them. I finally hit rock bottom in Knoxville, Tennessee. I wound up in jail. And it's while I was sitting there in jail one night, I got to thinking about Miss B. And I thought about the things that she taught us. But mostly what I thought about was the way she loved us. She had to love us or she wouldn't have been doing the things she did. Her love. Well, she was like a mother that I never had. I thought about her love. When I woke up the next morning, I was still thinking about Miss B. And I just kept on thinking about her. And things started to change. I got out on probation. And that's when I met Dylan. And we got married. And our life has been different forever. I've never looked back. She hugged her daughter closely. She went over to sit beside Autumn. And then she said... I remember Miss B saying, God only made one of us, one of me, and that he had a job for me in this world that no one else could do and a place for me that no one else could fill. Back then, those were just words. But I remembered. She hugged Summer and Autumn and then she looked up at Bob and said, Tell Miss B, I found my place. It's because of your unconditional love that we come to know the love of God. Mothers, it's through your love that we find our place. So today we say thank you. You are great. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.